I'll invite Martha Cole to read our scripture for us. And you can follow along in your Bibles. It's Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he walked into the temple, the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders came to him and began to say to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you will answer me. Then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they began to reason with one another, saying, If we say from heaven... He will say, well, why didn't you believe in him? But if we shall say from men. They were afraid of the multitudes, for all considered John to have been a prophet indeed. In answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together before we begin to study this passage. Father, like we do every week, and you've been so gracious to answer this prayer so many times for us, and we ask you again, please open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to your voice and your word. Let us not just um, learn facts, about you or about Jesus or about the temple. Let us do all that, but let us come to know you through this. Come closer to you. We open ourselves up to you now and just ask that you would do whatever work you see necessary and fit to do in our hearts through your word. And we thank you. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for praying with me. Our verse, uh, our passage begins at verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem as Jesus was walking in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and elders came to him. Now, we took a break from our journey through Mark last week while I was gone. And now we're coming back. And if you'll remember, Jesus is having this back and forth um, in the temple area and around the temple in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Now, this is ancient history. This is literally ancient history. And unless you're somebody who just loves ancient Jewish history, it might just seem far afield. It might just seem unimportant to your day-to-day life. And um, I, I cannot believe that that's true. This is God's word that his Holy Spirit inspired. So I know that he has something here for you. Today He brought you here today. I believe in his sovereignty over these things. And, and this is the passage where we find ourselves. So what I think might be helpful, though, and I hope this goes okay, um, is to just get a sense of the scene a little bit. I don't know what comes to your mind when you picture the temple, when it says he was walking in the temple. I'm not sure what you picture. We're used to buildings like this, church buildings, you know, local church buildings. 
I found a video, and I'm going to try to let it play while I describe the temple to you. And Tom, you can go ahead and begin it now and uh, have the volume down. Um, it's a little dim, but it gets brighter as it goes. This is a, a, a model that archaeologists and historians worked on to try to depict in sort of a 3D tour what the temple would have looked like during Jesus' time. Uh, and again, I apologize for how dim it is. I did everything I could there, but maybe you can get a sense for it as it plays. And I'll tell you a little bit about it. So when, when you hear the temple and the Bible, it can be referring to any of a number of different structures associated with the temple on top of what's called a temple mount. Um, the temple was first constructed by Solomon uh, to replace the tabernacle way, way back as the sole place for sacrifice and worship and connection with God. But it was destroyed by Israel's enemies, and a second temple was built. Uh, This is recorded uh, in the book of Ezra, partly, and then later on it was eventually renovated and expanded by someone called Herod the Great. This was about 19 B.C. It it was said that it was renovated and expanded, but it was such a massive expansion that it almost, it was practically a complete rebuild. Uh, Herod wanted it to be extremely impressive, Uh, He wanted it to be the centerpiece of Jerusalem, which he had hoped to be a centerpiece of his kingdom. Uh, So he built it to be impressive. It involved roughly 10,000 skilled laborers, according to the Jewish historian Josephus. Um, Their first job was to level the Temple Mount, the top of this mountain, um, making it a broader base for a larger structure. So they did that work, making it the largest man-made platform in the ancient world. They made it much taller than originally, so that being up on the Temple Mount, you'd be able to see it for miles and miles around. So it looked very, very impressive, very intimidating, very large. Um, I saw different estimates of exactly how large the footprint was, but it seems like this is roughly accurate, that it's about the size of 24 football fields about 145 acres. Now, as a kid, when I heard about the temple, I pictured like, you know, I I grew, when I was a little kid, I grew up going to Long's Grove. Maybe something like that. And then I went to other local churches and thought maybe it's something like that. This was a massive, massive plot of land with a huge structure. It It was massive. And when Jesus here is walking through it, it's at the time of Passover. So there's tons of people Huge crowds swarming about. As we enter our passage here, verses 27 and 28, it says, And they came again to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, if you'll remember, as we've been working through Mark for a while now, There's this intensifying public conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities for the Jewish people. Most recently, he went into that temple where they were uh, doing all the business that had grown around uh, the sacrificial system and worship. And he started turning tables over and rebuking everybody, quoting scripture. And it directly challenged and shamed the existing religious authorities. And this has been going on, it's been building, the pressure's been mounting, the tensions between Jesus and the Jewish religious authorities has been mounting. So who are these people in verse 28? 
I'm sorry, verse 27. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now, these were likely representatives of something called the Sanhedrin. It's like a big, almost like a big Supreme Court sort of set up for the Jewish people. The chief priests... These would have been very impressive-looking individuals with their, their robes and all their uh, regalia. And these were the men from the high priestly families. These were the authorities over worship for the Jewish people. And then the scribes were with them. These were like lawyers and judges. These were experts in interpreting the law, the Jewish Bible, the scriptures. And then the elders were sort of the community leaders. So, so you had the worship authorities here, you had the legal authorities here, and you had the community authorities all kind of sending a little delegation to challenge Jesus. And they're doing it publicly. They're doing it in the midst of, of, of the hustle and bustle of the temple in front of everybody. And they say to him, basically, what gives you the right? Who do you think you are? Basically is what they're saying. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? You you just came into the temple, turned over our money-changing tables, made a big mess out of everything, drove everybody out, made a big scene, quoted scripture trying to directly contradict our authority, our legitimate authority, as chief priests, elders, and scribes. Who do you think you are doing this? Now, Jesus was directly challenging their authority. He had been all along. If you remember some of the stories we've seen so far, Jesus' very first, when he begins teaching in public, the crowds are amazed at how authoritative his teaching is. And they even say, this is like a whole new teaching with authority. It's not like the scribes. And they actually say that. It's not like the scribes. This guy has authority. You have to imagine the scribes are over there, cheeks turning red, humiliated, angered. He forgave sins. He publicly said, your sins are forgiven to someone. And these Jewish religious authorities stand up and say, wait a minute, you can't be forgiving sins. You don't have the authority to do that. There again, a public challenge of authority, this wrestling of authorities here. And Jesus says, I, yes, I do have authority to forgive sins. And just to prove it, what's harder for me to say your sins are forgiven or to a paralyzed man get up and walk? And he heals a paralyzed man to prove He does have that authority. So there again, a second time, these Jewish religious authorities are humiliated in public. Their authority in the eyes of the people is eroding rapidly. Later on, these same sorts of people see Jesus hanging out with sinful people, tax collectors and prostitutes. And in public, they come to him and say, what do you think you're doing? And and again, he teaches them a superior teaching authoritative word of God directly from his mouth and shames them again in public, saying, I came for the sick. Doctors don't come for the well. They catch Jesus and his disciples not fasting. And he again publicly humiliates them and says, why would they fast when the bridegroom is here? They'll fast later when I'm gone. They come to him again and try to publicly shame him, try to even the score when he and his disciples don't seem to be observing the Sabbath. Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, basically, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Another public. They keep having these confrontations where these religious authorities are hoping to get the upper hand and reassert themselves 
as the legitimate authorities for the Jewish people. And every time, Jesus crushes them. They come to him because they're ignoring the traditions of the elders. And they do this in public every time because they're really, really hoping to embarrass him. But every time he turns it on them and embarrasses them instead. And in that case, when they challenge him about ignoring traditions, he exposes how empty and hollow all those traditions actually are and leaves them once again exposed as being hypocrites and as not having any legitimate authority. And then most recently, when he came in and cleansed the temple, it was just a a public slap to the face. And so here they are in public, in the temple, in front of everybody, once again, hoping. They're not trying to learn, where do you get this authority from, Jesus? We see that you have authority and we want to know more about this. That's not what they're doing. They're trying to degrade his authority in the eyes of the people. And so they approach him with this public question. They put Jesus on the spot. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Because in the religious structure that we've set up, we are the authorities and we don't recognize you. Jesus, once again, turns it around on them. In verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So here they thought they had Jesus on the spot, and he flips it around and puts them on the spot. And he's so confrontational about it. I'll ask you one question, and you will answer me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And then imagine just a a quiet. All the crowds around lean in. What are they going to say? Now they're on the spot. Their authority now is once again in jeopardy in the eyes of the people. Now, let's think about this for a minute together. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? You remember the baptism of John. It was at the very beginning of Mark. Mark began talking about the baptism of John. And I'll read that passage to you. It won't be projected, but this is how the book of Mark begins in Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now Mark doesn't record it very much, but John the Baptist and these same religious authorities had had very similar conflicts to what Jesus experienced with them. They didn't think his ministry out there baptizing was legitimate. So if you know anything about John the Baptist, you might remember he's from a priestly family. His father was a priest. 
He very likely could have been a priest. But instead, he chose this life of a prophet out in the wilderness, directly contradicting the work of the priest in the temple, proclaiming a baptism for the forgiveness of sins outside of the temple. All that stuff was supposed to happen in the temple under the control of these Jewish religious authorities. And here John's out there, and everybody's flocking out to him to get these, this first, this appetizer of the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness of sins through him. So their loss of authority began before Jesus. It began with Jesus' cousin, John, the Baptist, out in the wilderness. And so Jesus points back to that, back in our passage in Mark 11. I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, John, in his ministry, he identified Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, the Son of God. And all the people, all the populace, the crowds, loved John, and they believed in him. But these religious, religious authorities didn't. And so Jesus' question to them is perfect, it's checkmate, it's brilliant. And we read their response In verse 31, and they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? If you believe that John's baptism was from heaven, then you already know where my authority comes from. Because John told you, I'm the Savior, the Son of God. That's where my authority comes from. But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So we see here these Jewish religious authorities, how bankrupt they are. If they believed that the baptism of John was from heaven, they would have known Jesus' authority and they would have submitted to him. If they believed that the baptism of John was from man, they should have courageously warned the people against his false teaching out in the wilderness, regardless of the crowd's response. But they didn't love the people, and they didn't care about what was true. All they cared about was trying to retain their authority over the religious system. And Jesus, in just that one question, exposes it all. They could not and would not adjust their lives around Jesus' authority. And so they answer, verse 33 So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You will remain tragically ignorant of the Savior. Now, what does any of this have to do with us? What does any of this have to do with you? In your life right now, your circumstances from this last week, your circumstances you're heading into this week, what does this have to do with us? Well, I really only have one point for this sermon. And it's just come straightforwardly from the text. Because Jesus is the Savior and the Son of God, we must arrange our lives around His authority. Because Jesus is the Savior and the Son of God, We must arrange our lives around his authority. 
any lifestyle that is not centered upon Jesus Christ as the authority is hopeless and empty and vain, hollow. Now, we do not center our lives around a Jewish system of worship that had become corrupt like these religious authorities did. But we are and will always be tempted to center our lives around other things. We will always be lured away from Jesus Christ as our authority. It may be the magazines that you read that promote a lifestyle. It might be the TV shows you watch. It might be the traditions of your family. There will be influences that cause us to forget that Jesus is the Savior and Son of God and cause us to subtly, over time, ignore His authority or even deny and reject His authority. To be a Christian is to submit to Christ. And where there is no submission to Christ, there is no Christianity. Foundational to what we're doing together as a church is we are following Jesus as our Lord together. And I praise God that I see so much evidence among us that we are following Jesus as our Lord, that he is the authority. I see it uh, when I see repentance among us. I see it when I see people taking up their cross to follow Jesus, self-sacrificially following Jesus, obeying his commands and teachings, loving the people around them, even their enemies. I see it when I see people laying up treasures in heaven instead of treasures on earth, just like Jesus told us to do. Giving up the American dream for the kingdom dream. I see it when I see couples remain steadfast in marriage through the hard times because Jesus taught against divorce. I see it when I see people making every effort in their place of business, in their families, in the community, and through even more extraordinary means, to make disciples of all nations. I see it when we give of our resources to something like Penny Crusade. I praise God for how he has worked among us and established the authority of Jesus Christ among us. There's a lot to be grateful for there. But we still need to be reminded of it. Because Jesus is the Savior and Son of God, we must arrange our lives around his authority. There's good signs among us and there's bad signs among us. Uh, One of the biggest heartaches I have as your pastor have been what I'll call the baptisms to nowhere. The people who sprung up with faith for just a little bit and baptized and they, they embraced the forgiveness of sins to a degree, but they didn't end up embracing the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. And so they continued to make their decisions based on their own authority. And to drift away. What would it look like to arrange your life around Jesus' authority? What would it look like for us as a church to perfectly arrange our life together around Jesus' authority? I think quiet times would start to look more like meetings with our commanding officer 
maybe less sentimental, more practical, more real. I think house-to-house discussions would look more and more like wrestling with the particulars of obeying our Lord Jesus Christ in real life, in prayer together in that regard. I think we're growing in this, and I want to continue growing in this. As we read at the beginning of the service, Jesus told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. Let's arrange our lives around his authority. Let's arrange our church around his authority. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for recording instances like this in your word for us where we get to see Jesus interacting with people and we get to learn more about his character and his identity. Now we just need you to help us live in light of it. Search our hearts and reveal to us any pockets, any areas, any darkened corners in which we are not submitting to the lordship of your son, Jesus Christ. Please reveal those areas to us so that we can repent and confess and be forgiven and turn toward you. And we confess together that Jesus is your son, that Jesus is the Savior, that he is the Lord, that he is the rightful authority. We ask for your help to submit to him together. In Jesus' name, amen.